when we talk about the failure on the war on drugs, it kind of took the wind out of our sails, all the investigators on that team, when we realized we were investigating our own government's drug smuggling operations. Because you've always taken such charge. You are listening to the Border Chronicle. I'm Melissa Del Bosque, investigative journalist and co-founder of the independent Border Chronicle. For today's episode, we spoke to Sheriff David Hathaway, head of the Santa Cruz County Sheriff's Office. Hathaway spent years with the Drug Enforcement Administration, and he's a fifth-generation Arizona native and longtime border resident. We covered a lot of ground with the sheriff, including his criticisms of federal drug policies, so we decided it would take two episodes to cover it all. So we hope you enjoy, and make sure you subscribe and come back for part two. I appreciate you just taking the time today here at your office to to speak with us. And uh, first of all, I wanted to start off with that, you know, your family has lived here for many generations here on the border. And how has the border changed since you were a child? And why did you decide to become sheriff? Yeah, um, that's a great question. My great-grandparents came here in the 1800s and the 1880s. So that was before Arizona became a state. Arizona became a state in 1912. Uh, always have lived here on the border, what is now known as Santa Cruz County. In territorial times, this was not known as Santa Cruz County, but my great-grandparents were involved in ranching. Back then, um, the relationship, the, the beneficial relationship with Mexico was, you know, uh, more obvious. There wasn't the visible barriers. It was just kind of the, the cultural and economic relationships um, that have always been mutually beneficial for the community. Um, were, you know, more evident during that period of time. And um, then myself in, you know, and then my, my, my great grandparents, my grandparents, my dad, myself, we've, uh, you know, we've lived in this community. I was born here in a hospital called uh, Hospital San Jose or the St. Joseph's Hospital about 100 meters from the border. It's no longer exists. It's now a Burger King there. Mm. I was born um, here in this community, grew up here, went through the public school system here. Um, my wife also grew up here and she also went through the public school system here. We've always, you know, uh, lived and worked and experienced the beneficial relationships with Mexico. And I've been especially surprised or saddened at all the negative hype about the border. You know, uh, I've always seen the border relationship being very positive. Uh, we use the term ambos nogales here because um, the city on the U.S. side of the border is named Nogales and the city on the, on the other side of Mexico is also named Nogales. So like we say, una comunidad desafortunadamente dividida por la frontera. One community, unfortunately, divided by the, uh, by the border. Um, but it's a very symbiotic relationship, various industries, the maquiladora industry, the produce industry, tourism, um, you know, the medical and dental industry on the south side of the border. People go to Mexico to do certain things. People from Mexico come to the U.S. to do certain things. And it's a very beneficial relationship. It's estimated that pre-COVID that um, approximately $55 million of tourist dollars come into the U.S. every day in the four border states. So California, Arizona, New Mexico, and Texas. 
Now, during the COVID era, there were various things done that kind of shut down that economic relationship, things like Title 42, uh, things like the invalidation of millions of legal visas from Mexico. People were considered non-essential and they couldn't cross. And 90% of our local retail businesses went bankrupt during that time. And there's still the effects of that ongoing today. So, um, yeah, but a little bit about my history. I started as a deputy sheriff here. After I graduated from Nogales High School, I went to the University of Arizona, and then I went to law school at the University of Arizona up in Tucson, just up the road. And then I started career in law enforcement as a deputy sheriff. And after that, I went uh, to the federal government as a DEA agent, and I worked eight assignments around the world with the DEA, which is the anti-drug federal uh, agency, the Drug Enforcement Administration. Yeah. And... Um... As you just mentioned, you worked many, many years for the DEA, and, and obviously we always hear a lot about um, drug trafficking at the border and so forth. Um, and I know that you have said that, you know, the, the war on drugs is a failure. And in fact, uh, I think the last time we spoke, um, you said you worked on the investigation into the death of the murder of Kiki Camarena, who was a DEA agent back in the 80s a very infamous case. Um, and I was hoping you could talk a little bit about that and what you discovered from that investigation and sort of how that informed your current views on the war on drugs. You know, we learned this lesson, Melissa, during alcohol prohibition from 1920 to 1933. Um, at least they had the honesty back then to change the Constitution, to actually do a constitutional amendment, because there's no provision in the Constitution for uh, a prohibition on substances. Um, you know, the, the things that the federal government is allowed to do are delineated and short and specific, and everything else is reserved to the states and the people. So at least during alcohol prohibition, they passed an amendment to change the Constitution to make alcohol illegal. But what did we learn through that period of alcohol prohibition? Um, well, <laughs> first of all, there's something that always happens if you prohibit a substance like that. Like the drink of preference of Americans before alcohol prohibition was beer and wine, low alcohol content uh, drinks. So during prohibition, smugglers are smart. So they started smuggling the more potent concentrated versions of alcohol like gin and vodka and whiskey. And so this actually changed the tastes of Americans towards uh, uh, more concentrated uh, alcoholic drinks, liquor. Um, and so this is an effect that you also see during um, during drug prohibition, like the, uh, the the drugs that Americans used in, in the North American continent before the Harrison Tax Act and before drug prohibition were low THC, what you call ditchweed marijuana that was already present in the U.S. And the Asian community, uh, some of them smoked uh, raw opium. So that was those were kind of the drugs that were used before drug prohibition. But then when you prohibit something, uh, the smugglers are smart, so they always import more concentrated version of that drug. So the same as during alcohol prohibition, they didn't want to import beer and wine, which is mostly water. So when, when drug prohibition came out, they started importing more potent versions of, of marijuana, like things like hash and hashish and ha hash oil and sensimia. Um, the same thing happened with the opiates. Like 
uh, instead of importing raw opium, it takes 400 kilos of raw opium to make one kilo of heroin. So they change to importing heroin because it's much less risk to import a kilo of heroin. You can break a kilo of heroin into multiple packages, tape it to your body and walk through as a pedestrian. But if you, if you try to import 400 kilos of raw opium, well, you know, there's more chance of being detected. So that's one of the negative effects of, um, of you know, drug prohibition or substance prohibition is the, the, uh, the users get accustomed to a more potent version because that's what the smugglers bring in. So that, that's one aspect of, of the failure of the drug war. It's actually made the problem worse by getting users accustomed to a stronger product, whether it was alcohol or, or whether it was drugs. And then it, it moves to things like heroin and then things like fentanyl, which are even stronger opiates, they, more potency in a small package. But then it increases the likelihood of overdose. But this is an adaptation that the smugglers do to, um, to try to run less risk when they come across the border. But now I'll shift to your, the second part of your question about Kiki Camarena. Yes, my first assignment with DEA, I did eight assignments with DEA around the world. My first assignment was five years working in Kiki Camarena's hometown, his original office, Calexico, California. That's where he was born and grew up and... Um, you know, and his his family members were st were still there at the time I was working there, and I started working in that office shortly after Kiki Camarena's death in Mexico. So the standard story always was that a group of drug traffickers tortured Kiki Camarena, uh, his actual name Enrique Enrique Camarena. They tortured him to death in Mexico. Um, but I became part of what was known as Operation Leyenda, and this was a special project in DEA to investigate those involved in the torture and murder of the uh, of DEA agent Kiki Camarena in Mexico. And what I found out was very shocking, as did the other agents. I remember sitting in my office in Calexico, California, and a contract pilot for the CIA came into my office and he said he wanted to be debriefed and tell the real story of what happened to Kiki Camarena. So I wrote it down and documented it. And it was, I was a newbie back then. It was so incredible, it was almost unbelievable. He said, well, what was really happening is Kiki Camarena stunned, stumbled upon the CIA's drug smuggling operation where they were sending drugs to the Contras in Nicaragua and uh, sending guns to the Contras and in return sending cocaine to the US to fund the drug purchases, and that Congress, right before then, had passed a law making it illegal for the U.S. government to spend any government money, any taxpayer money, on the Contra, on supporting the Contras uh, war in Nicaragua, so that the CIA had come up with alternative sources, and that was drug smuggling, cocaine smuggling, and that Kiki Camarena stumbled across this, and he was killed, and interrogated and tortured to death. And his, his, um, his torture session was recorded by the CIA. And on those recordings, you can hear the CIA agent asking him, what do you know about the CIA involvement in drug smuggling? What do you know about the CIA's involvement with the Contras in Nicaragua? And this stuff, it just, it was the opposite of the narrative I had always heard, but I documented it. And then the other agents, like the lead investigator on that case, Hector Bedeas, actually went to Mexico and found multiple people that were in the room 
when Kiki Camarena was being tortured to death and had them do, did a photo lineup and they all identified a, uh, a CIA agent named, named uh, Felix Rodriguez. He also used a pseudonym, Max Gomez, as the one leading the interrogation that was recording the session and then uh, provided the tapes to us. So it was like, you know, <laughs> when we talk about the failure on the war on drugs, it kind of took the wind out of our sails, all the investigators on that team, when we realized we were investigating our own government's drug smuggling operations in, uh, in Mexico and in Central America. And if I can fast forward a little bit, after I worked five years in Calexico, uh, I was assigned to South America. I worked a total of um, eight years in South America, actually living in South America. When I was in Bolivia, I ran a team of Bolivian police officers and military officers. And we were doing uh, investigations, communications intercepts, and identified the biggest cocaine trafficker uh, that was smuggling cocaine, um, getting the raw, the raw leaves, the cocaine paste, turning it into cocaine hydrochloride and smuggling it out through Colombia onto the U.S. So we documented the shipments, you know, thousands of kilos of cocaine, um, did a lot of communications intercepts, and then we decided we're going to raid this guy's house. When we started doing surveillance to raid the house, we noticed the CIA team um, that I knew the members of their team that also worked in the U.S. Embassy in Bolivia going in and out of that house, in and out of that house, in and out of that house. It's like, that's the weirdest thing in the world. You know, they're participating in this. But what we were supposed to do is a deconfliction meeting with other agencies before we did the raid. But I knew if we went in, bear in mind, I already knew the story on Kiki Camarena. I knew if we went into the embassy and had a deconfliction meeting with the CIA and the other members of the intelligence community, if we did that before we raided that house, that the operation would be shut down. It wouldn't be approved by the ambassador and the other agencies, part of our what we called our operations planning group, our OPG. So we just went and raided it anyway. And this caused a storm in the embassy. Uh, the CIA got upset with us. Um, the ambassador almost kicked us out of the country because the ambassador typically is very, like, very closely aligned with the, uh, the CIA. But DEA had a very big presence in, in, in the country, so we were able to weather the storm. Next part of that story is the CIA uh, sends in a hit team to break their guy out of prison, out of the prison in Bolivia. But what they didn't know is the pilot that they hired was a DEA informant, the pilot they hired to bring their hit team into the country. To They had rocket-propelled grenades, automatic weapons uh, to come in and break their guy out of the prison. But since they hired unknowingly, unwittingly, a DEA informant who was a pilot to transport their team into the, into the country, we arrested the team that came in to break the CIA guy out of prison. And so that, once again, made another huge storm. Um, and those two incidents, the thing with investigating Kiki Camarena, which gave me up-close personal information, up-close personal involvement, and involvement in the case in Bolivia, just confirmed on the source where the cocaine's coming from, CIA involvement, transshipment uh, sites in Mexico and Central America, CIA was involved. And if any of your listeners have ever read um, Gary Webb, and the Dark Alliance series, you know, and thought, is this really true? Is the CIA really importing and selling drugs in the U.S.? Yes, absolutely. 
And I witnessed it firsthand and it sounds incredible. It sounds like the thing of like some spy novel or a fiction thing, you know, an action uh, suspense movie, but I really experienced and really saw it to be true. So that for me took my, the wind out of my sails to see, wait a minute, I work for one branch of the federal government and we're investigating another branch of the federal government that is, you know, smuggling cocaine. CIA doesn't have any end goal. The DEA, for all its shortcomings, at least has the goal of arresting people, uh, giving them their day in court, prosecuting them, presenting evidence to a jury. But the CIA has no end goal other than per perpetuating their foreign wars and funding them illegally or however they need to do it. So that was a wake up call for me. Yeah. And uh, I guess for for people who who don't know much about the, the murder of Kiki Camarena. This happened in 1985, 1985, correct? February of 1985. And, and it was a huge diplomatic crisis, right, between Mexico and the United States. Um, yeah, it was. And the U.S. reacted trying to punish Mexico um, by shutting down all the ports of entry. Um, and just like, oh, we're going to teach these uh, cartels, these organizations in Mexico, you can't act with impunity. Um, you know, we're going to teach you a lesson for doing this to our agent in Mexico. And it's kind of the funny thing. I Forgive me for using the word funny is, you know, it was actually the U.S. government <laughs> that was behind this, behind this huge smuggling operation in Rancho Veracruz, which was... Uh, Rafael Caro Quintero's ranch in Mexico that was used by the CIA as a transshipment point for guns going to the Contras and cocaine coming to the U.S. That you know, and then Raf people like Rafael Caro Quintero are listed, uh, and Ernesto Fonseca Carillo, they are listed as the fall guys, as the masterminds, as the ones who did all this to Kiki Camarena. You'll still see that today, that Rafael Caro Quintero did all this, you know, tortured him to death, masterminded it. You know, there were other people in the room, but the, the, the lead um, interrogator, the one who was recording it, and the one who was kept badgering Kiki with questions about uh, what does he know, what does the DEA know about the, what the CIA is doing with the Contras, what the CIA is doing with cocaine shipments, was uh, this CIA agent. And there's actually, that tape is actually out there, and actually transcripts of that tape, where he is asking Kiki Camarena, what does the DEA know about the CIA's drug trafficking in Nicaragua, and the, you know, financing the Contras, and in Mexico? Um, so it was just like mind blowing to actually, a DEA was so serious about getting to the bottom of one of their agents being killed that they just did everything possible to go find everybody in the room, interrogate them, do photo lineups, like who was the person that was masterminding this. And then it was at that point, it kind of fell on deaf ears. Once the whole case was forwarded to Washington with boxes of, of, uh, evidence and interviews. Um, once it got to Washington to the level of the, the administrator of the DEA, and so you have like a, an agency head in, in Washington, butting heads with other agency heads. At that point, it was just all buried. There was no indictments forthcoming against people in the CIA. You know, it was just kind of explained, look, we're, <laughs> we don't need to follow the Constitution. We're, we just do what we think we need to do to support the interest of the U.S. around the world. So at that point... The, actually, the lives of the DEA agents who were investigating the CIA, the, their lives actually were in danger at that point. And they were 
told their lives were in danger by CIA agents. Look, you guys need to drop this. You need to let this go. Yeah. And when we spoke about this on the phone, you pointed me in the direction of a series that came out called The Last Narc. It came out in 2020 and it's, I think, on Amazon right now. Yeah. And it was done by one of my fellow agents, um, Hector Bedeas. We were both signed to California and we both worked on the uh, Operation Leyenda, and we both worked a lot in Mexico, extensively in Mexico, doing and along the border doing investigations. And it's available for free. Um, it's a four-part series. It's called The Last Snark. It's on Amazon Prime. And if your listeners, your audience wants to just cut to the chase, they can listen to the last episode, episode four of that series called The Last Snark. And what's really interesting, Melissa, is there's nothing redacted in there. There's no fake names. The actual people that were in the room are actually on there. Um, they became DEA informants. And it's not like where they're silhouetted or they have some obscured fuzzy image or where they obscure their voice. People like uh, uh, Godoy, who is one of the Jalisco State Police officers that was in the room and, and two other officers. They actually have them on camera nowadays. You know, they're still alive. And Hector has stayed the, the lead DEA agent on Operation Leyenda the investigation to find out who killed Kiki Camarena. He stayed in touch with all these people and they actually put them all on camera, not using fake names. Um, and they actually all identified this guy, Felix Rodriguez, who used the pseudonym Max Gomez. Um, and they actually show the transcript on there of the torture session. So I, it was amazing to me that that actually made it onto Amazon and you can actually see, you know, not with fake names, not with anything, the actual DEA agent, the actual cooperating uh, individuals that were in the room that were police, Mexican police officers that were in the room where the CIA agent was torturing and interrogating Kiki Camarena. Um, and, you know, that the, Hector Bereas just made the decision a couple of years ago that he doesn't want to go to his grave with this information. He has done a great job putting the case together, forwarding all the information to Washington. Nothing was done with it. So he thought, well, he's had death threats uh, for his involvement in the case. At least he's going to put it out to the public. And I got to hand it to Amazon for actually being brave enough to put this on there. After it was on for a couple of weeks, it was taken down for a couple of months. And I thought, oh, no. As, as someone, as a journalist who has written about the drug war for many years on the border and really struggled to define what's happening in Mexico with the conflict. Um, I was just amazed by sort of these high level agents who worked on the case and then the state police who actually abducted Kiki Camarena on, on the record talking about everything that happened. And, and at the direction of the CIA, the CIA agent was in the planning sessions and they identified uh, who they were going to abduct. And they had pre-planning meetings with the CIA. And then he actually went out there and they identified him and picked, they picked him up. So it was like, yeah, they were, they were involved and they were stooges and they were part of, part of the thing. But the big money was coming from the CIA using Rancho Veracruz that was owned by Rafael Caro Quintero. And of course, Caro Quintero got, got money off of it um, as well. But, you know, if you tried to do this officially, um, when I've considered writing things, there's every agency that does sensitive investigations has what they call a publication review board. Um, so there's been whistleblowers within the CIA and NSA and DEA and FBI that have attempted to tell the story, but 
they don't want to run the risk of getting thrown in jail for really revealing government sources, government information, information that was obtained while they were working and on the payroll for the government. Because technically your work product while you're working for the DEA or CIA or FBI or NSA is technically the product of the government. And if you write a book, you're supposed to submit it to the publication review board of your agency. And they won't approve that stuff. They won't approve They'll maybe approve something that's severely redacted that doesn't have any names, it doesn't have any specific dates or informations, and they'll use the argument that, well, this will reveal methods and sources and techniques and we don't want this to get out there. An example of somebody who did that was Sybil Edmonds. She was, a, she was an employee. She worked for NSA and, and CIA, and she tried to write down her experiences of all the lies and things that were done, and it could never get past the publication review boards. Of, of her former agency she worked for. She was a translator and she became aware of all this stuff. So what she did is she made the decision to write a lot of fiction and she concluded you can tell a lot of truth through fiction where you tell true stories but you change the names, you change the dates and things like that. And then you're not technically violating these uh, these rules within all these agencies. agencies. But I got to hand it to Hector Bereas that he actually <laughs> bypassed all that and did it directly with Amazon, an original series with Amazon. Nothing was obscured, nothing was redacted. The actual individuals involved with the investigation, the actual DEA people having their faces on camera, the DEA head of intelligence, uh, you know, uh, uh, Jordan, Phil Jordan, I think his, his name was, uh, Keith, who was uh, agent in charge in Mexico, Hector Benes himself, other DEA employees, um, and the actual people that were involved in the abduction of Kiki Camarena that was ordered and orchestrated by the CIA, those actual individuals are on there without their face obscured or anything. And Hector actually wrote a book with the same name. Um, the most interesting part though is when you get to the end about the Kiki, Kiki Camarena um, aspects, which you can glean that from the Amazon series. Yeah, it's a bit heart, heartbreaking about how the DA made a real effort to recruit young Latino border residents into the agency who then seem to have been sacrificed. You know, uh, Kiki Camarena was from Calexico, Hector was from South Tucson, uh, and then they really, they really got screwed over. Well, yeah, it's just, that's why I wound up getting recruited in, in, in DEA also is because I spoke Spanish. I grew up um, here on the border in Nogales. And back then with, you know, Reagan's war on drugs, there was the, the idea was we need to get to the source and the source was in Latin American countries and the idea that kind of, you know, you're right, you know, demonizing the Latin American countries as if they were the problem. And of course, there was the consumer demand in the U.S., which was the actual problem. But I was recruited for the same reason. And that's why I was sent to Calexico. And then I worked uh, five years in Bolivia, three years in Paraguay. And then I ended up my career with DEA as the, the uh, chief of the agency here in in uh, southern part of Arizona. I was the agent in charge of DEA um, in, in this part of Arizona where I'm, I'm now the sheriff. But it was for that reason is, you're right, the, the Hispanic uh, agents and the agents who spoke Spanish were the ones that were that did the heavy lifting, that were recruited to actually do the undercover. I did a lot of undercover with you know, marijuana trafficking organizations, cocaine, methamphetamine, heroin, as did Hector. He did the same thing. So the ones that could speak Spanish actually 
we're put on the firing line and exposed to the most da- you know dangerous situations and recruited to 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 go into those type of situations and recruited to go to the foreign countries and to do the dangerous assignments and there was a lot of agents that didn't speak Spanish that were also sent to foreign countries and you're right they got the cushy jobs they got the office jobs where the the Spanish speakers like myself and Hector we had to actually go out and you know do the undercover and be involved in the investigations yeah and 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 in the series the last narc you can see this is already the 80s and you can just see how screwed up things are and and the just billions in profits that are being made that are like utterly corrupting governments on both sides of of the border um and fast forward to current day and you know the conflict that's been happening in Mexico now for you know since the beginning of the two, 2000s which i have been writing about and trying to make sense out of. Um, what do you think is going on there now in Mexico with this conflict? You know, you're exactly right, Melissa, about the corrupting influence. If I can flash back briefly to the alcohol prohibition, before that, there were not drive-by shootings. There was not gang violence. That was a direct outcome of alcohol prohibition. You drive something that people want, there's consumer demand, you drive it underground, you create a black market, then you have clashes between police and the people selling the illegal product and between the different factions that are selling the illegal product. So it causes violence. You know, when you prohibit something like that, like alcohol, it caused violence. That violence went away when alcohol prohibition went away. Now it was back in the open. Um, You can have product labels. Companies value their reputation. If a company nowadays that produces alcohol or liquor, if they do something like if they have a contaminated product, if their production procedures result in contaminants in their product, they'll be driven out of position, out of, out, of, uh, out of business by market forces. People vote with their dollars. You get more of what you want and you get less of what you don't want. You know, so if you had like contaminated products in, you know, within, you know, uh, Budweiser, Coors, you know, Seagram's, uh, Jim Beam, uh, it would spread far and wide. They would get bad reviews and people would stop using their product. But on an underground product, like say, uh, you know, black tar heroin or what they call South Asian, uh, Southeast Asian white heroin or, uh, you know, marijuana, hashish, fentanyl, if that stuff is uh, laced with uh, with other precursor chemicals, toxic substances. If somebody dilutes a product like, say, heroin, they add other substances to it so they can make more product. If that stuff turns out to be lethal, there's no way to backtrack that for liability purposes to the person who produced that. So if you made, let's say if you made all drugs legal, well, then any business that out in the open dealt in that, they would be they would be penalized on their reputation or rewarded on their reputation. If they had the reputation of producing bad, dangerous products, there would be lawsuits um, and they would be driven out of business and they would get a bad reputation. So you, you what you're doing is you're not allowing people to thrive on their reputations anymore if you make something illegal. There's no packaging. There's no product labels to tell you how the thing was made, you know, or what the ingredients are or anything like that. But now to the corruption, yeah, I don't know what the the answer is on that. It's just an ongoing thing in Mexico and in the U.S. You know, I so many people 
revere Border Patrol and act like Border Patrol is just like the, like their messiah. You know, like I, I totally I don't understand that. I have a stack of clippings, newspaper clippings of all the corrupt Border Patrol agents, all the agents that have done things that, where they've been sexual predators, you know, like and they've you know done things of uh, embezzling funds and, you know, being paid off by, by drug dealers, you know, it's, um, it's just a formula for corruption, both in Mexico and, you know, on, on this side of the border. And I, I wish I had the answer for you. And I know some of your, some of your listeners are going to probably think it's extreme of me to say to just, you know, um, legalize everything. But if you do that and, and some company produces a product or an individual produces a product and it's out in the open, and their reputation can be tracked, they're not gonna to wanna to produce something that's harming other people because they're gonna get sued or they're gonna get driven out of business. But yeah, the corruption is there through various administrations in Mexico and through the years in the US, it's there also. And I wish I had a good punchline for that of how, <laughs> how we can deal with that. But I know it's caused by the uh, prohibition of drugs. And you know, beyond that, I don't really have a really good snappy punchline of a good conclusion, a good remedy for that. And and the huge amount of, of money being made and the huge amount of demand for drugs in the United yeah. States. Well, that's why in my position as sheriff here, we do a, lot, a whole lot of what we call demand reduction. A lot of events going to the public schools, talking to the community. We have a coalition here called the Substance Abuse Coalition. There's a group called Circles of Peace another group called Hope Incorporated, the Wellness Connection, the Mariposa Community Health Center. We all get together and do these events to try to you know, talk about the dangers of drug use and do these what we call demand reduction events. We also have a, a magistrate in our county named Emilio Velasquez who has a very novel uh, court program for mental health issues and drug abuse issues. We would all prefer what we call diversion programs. Generically, we call them in, in the criminal justice world diversion programs. That means options other than incarceration. And this uh, Judge Velasquez, one of our judges here in Santa Cruz County, has created a court, you know, a, a program, a kind of a sentencing program, where if people go through his, uh, you know, drug abuse program or the mental health uh, program that they can actually avoid incarceration, like steps to help people avoid incarceration. We want to keep families together. We want to keep people employed, um, you know, with their jobs um, in, in, instead of just putting the burden on the taxpayers to incarcerate people. So there's things we can do on the demand side, like as you pointed out, uh, which is where my primary focus is, you know, uh, rather than just, um, you know, trying to throw people in jail and, you know, throw away the key. The Border Chronicle is reported by Todd Miller and Melissa Del Bosque, based in Tucson, Arizona. If you like what you're hearing, please consider rating us on your favorite podcast platform and follow and share with your friends so you don't miss part two of the episode with Sheriff Hathaway and so that other people can find the show. You can read and listen to more local border reporting on our website, theborderchronicle.com.